Good morning, church. It's an absolute joy to be up here to uh, bring God's word to you this morning. Let's turn to him one more time in prayer before we get going. Father in heaven, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word this morning. Pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and cause us to marvel at your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of us know a picky eater. And unfortunately, I used to be one of them. As a child growing up, I stuck to the four main food groups, pasta, mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and dessert. My mom was always stuffing pasta with spinach, and I was always inspecting my plate to make sure that there was no rogue vegetables making it into my mouth. And this made going out to eat at various restaurants quite humorous. My grandfather would take us out to a fancy steakhouse several times a year called Hyde Park. And my order would consistently be mocked because I would order buttered noodles with Parmesan cheese at a steakhouse. I would always hear my dad saying, I pity a fool from Rocky. And uh, this was extremely wearisome for my grandfather as I was 13 still ordering buttered noodles at a steakhouse. So one time, he offered not only to pay for my steak, but to pay me to order a steak at the restaurant. I took him up on that, and my first bite was world-changing, okay? You know, your first bite of an amazing steak. I saw what I had been missing, and my parents always say in that moment that I, I exclaimed, think of all the steaks that I have missed. And I was stuck and stubborn, And I wouldn't listen to others about something that I had never tasted. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is your story. You once had no taste for God. You once had no appeal to the message of the cross. But your eyes were opened to the glory of the cross. And you saw your Savior and you loved him at the cross. This morning I'm thrilled that I get to preach to you the most central message of the Bible, and the most important message of the Bible, the message of the cross. So we're going to be spending our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. You can turn there in the Pew Bible. It's on page 952. We've been making our way through the Proverbs this summer, learning about wisdom from God. And this morning, we see where wisdom finds its ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament. So read with me 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, 
and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As I said earlier, we've been making our way through the Proverbs this summer, learning about wisdom, which is from God. And the Bible tells us that there's wisdom from God and that there's wisdom of the world. And that wisdom of the world, the Bible calls folly. So our main idea this morning is that the life of wisdom is centered on the cross. And so we're going to start with that we should reject the wisdom of the world. It's our first point this morning, reject the wisdom of the world. We're going to see that in verses 18 to 25. So in the very first verse, we see the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The cross in the eyes of the world, it's ludicrous. It's madness. It's scandalous. The word of the cross is that message that we have that's been passed down for generations to us from the apostles. It's the message of God leaving his throne to put on flesh and dwell among man and to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into the world with one mission and one purpose. Paul tells us that mission in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was the mission of God, to send Christ into the world to save sinners. It was his eternal plan for Jesus to come and pay for sin on a Roman cross in the place of sinners like you and me. This was God's plan all along, to redeem a people for himself. The word of the cross, it's God declaring to his people the length to which he would go to be with us. You know, one author said this, the cross is a self-assertion and self-declaration, but one that's less like a political manifesto and more like a marriage proposal. God says to his people at the cross of Jesus, this is who I am. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. This is the message that all Christians have believed. But this is not the message that the world wanted to receive. This isn't the message that the world wanted to hear. And the reason being is that humanity is prideful. And we are confronted in our pride and our sin at the cross. John 3.19 says this, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. The world didn't want a king who would come into the world to suffer. So instead, the world sought life and wisdom outside of God. And we can see this 
in our day as much as any, right? When we look around and we see the moral absurdity of our day as our culture runs from the wisdom of God. But friends, don't be mistaken. This isn't anything new. People have been seeking life and wisdom apart from God for generations. Look there at verse 19. 19, It says, a quote from Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God told his people in ancient Israel, those who look wise now will come to nothing and their wisdom will be rejected at the end. What looks wise now will look like folly on the last day. The wisdom of this world is the path straight to ruin and death. Look there at verse 20. It tells us that God made foolish the philosopher of the world. He's made foolish the law teacher. The one who seems to know much of this world knows nothing of ultimate reality. Why? Because they have not received the message of the cross. You know, all of this helps us to make sense of our world. You know, as we bring the gospel to a dying world, you know, it, it helps us understand their rejection of the cross, right? When we look at, at, at the cross, Christian, we see the glory of God. We see Jesus' self-giving. We see his goodness. Yet when the world looks at Jesus, it scoffs. You might hear people like the Jews there in verse 22 I would believe in God if he would just show himself to me. I need more empirical evidence. I need to see God. I need to have a sign and a proof. You might hear others like the Greeks there in verse 22. This plan of salvation that God made should have been more obvious. It doesn't make sense to us. What all-powerful God should die? Instead of Receiving the revelation of God, the world seeks to create their idea of who God should be. Michael Reeves tells us that a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. This constitutes the worship of the creature, not the creator. When you ask people in the world, who is God? What's he like? You're going to get a lot of different answers. People have assumptions and expectations about who God is and what he's like. But the question that every person needs to ask themselves is where do you get your expectations and assumptions for who God is and what he is like? You know, we can only know God through his revelation of himself to us in his word. We must then reject culturally informed ideas about God. So you might hear the message from the world that if God was loving, he wouldn't judge. Or if God is the creator, then why did he make me like this? But why should the clay question the potter, says the Bible? Who are we to say what God should and shouldn't be like when he made all things? On the ground level, having God come from man's mind means that each person is defining God in their own way. God is then centered in the self. And we can get caught up in this just by living in the world subtly, by what we consume on TV or, you know, what we hear on a podcast or what we watch on YouTube. 
Our values can be subtly influenced. Then we come back to God's word and we ask, is this still true? Is this still relevant for our day? People in this world are seeking to influence you. And it might not be toward the wisdom of God. Who are your influencers? What are the voices that you are listening to? Do they have God's word underpinning their views? Or is it a worldly wisdom? We're all being fed something. We need to ask ourselves, is that food going to nourish our soul? Or will it poison it? Part of how we reject the wisdom of the world is by proclaiming the wisdom of God to those who are held captive by these worldly snares. The Bible makes sense of the world for us. It tells us that the message that we proclaim, the message of the cross, will fall on deaf ears and blind eyes. Should we then stop proclaiming the message of the gospel? Should we stop being a witness to Christ if people will not receive the message? No. We should be emboldened in our evangelism, right? Because our job is not to convert people. Our job is to open the curtain, right? So that they might see the theater of God and see his glorious show. As we share the word of the cross with unbelievers, some of us will look at us and say, that's hardly believable. Others will look at us and say, you're a fool. Others will be offended. But still others will hear the word of what we proclaim and they will be saved. Look there at verse 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God can choose to use any means to bring people to himself. He can choose anything to call people to himself. But he uses the proclamation of the message of the cross, and he uses sinners like you and me. This is what pleases God. But guess what? It might make you look like a fool in this world. Yet we remember that all of us began from a place of self-sufficiency, right? We all sought to know God through our own wisdom, and it wasn't until God brought someone into our life who was willing to look like a fool for Christ that we believed the message. Christian, we reject the wisdom of the world because God himself has revealed to us true wisdom. Christ is the wisdom, and he is the sign that the Jews and the Greeks were looking for. This brings us to our next point. We're to reject the wisdom of God, or the wisdom of the world, and we're to remember the word of the cross. This is point number two. We are to remember the word of the cross. We're still here in verses 18 to 25. True wisdom in the Proverbs, as we've been seeing this summer, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts, right? Because we see in Proverbs 1-7 that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. So that means for us Christians that we daily repent of our sin and we seek forgiveness from Jesus at the cross. God's telling us this morning in his word that true wisdom can never be found apart from him. The church there in the city of Corinth, they were struggling to not conform to the world around them. There were many people who were articulate, who were wise. They had great rhetoric and great speech. There was 
intellectuals and captivating new ideas. There was wealth to be attained. All of this brought social status. So the Corinthian believers there were tempted to conform to the world around by the allures of the world, much like we might be here in our own city. But the church there were reminded of the message that they heard from Paul at first. Look there at verse 18 with me. Paul says, The cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. The cross is the message that we come back to over and over and over again. Because it is the message itself that has the power to save us. Yet, it's the reality that in our pride, we're tempted to move on from the cross. We become familiar with it. And we look to move on to other discussions happening in our day. But the cross, it's our sole food. It's the meal that we need every day. It's the meal that will nourish our souls. The word of the cross is life to us and to those around us. Our passage not only tells us that the word of the cross is power of God, but it also tells us, look there in verse 24, that Christ himself is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Anyone who would turn to Jesus Christ and believe on him will be saved. We see there in verse 24 that this salvation is both for the Jew and for the Greek. It's for all people. It's for all nations everywhere. This same message for the entire world. But there's a distinction made between those Jews and Greeks who received the message of the cross and those Jews and Greeks who rejected it. Look there again at the beginning of verse 24. Christ is received by those who are called. We'll see the same word again in verse 26. But it tells us that our knowing the word of the cross to be the power of God has nothing to do with anything in ourselves. It has everything to do with God and him calling us. Our passage this morning, it's actually situated in a a bigger argument that Paul is making about church unity. Many there in the church were divided about who the best teachers of the day were and who they would be following. You see that there in verses 10 to 17. But Paul flips those arguments upside down. He says, it's not about who's teaching you and who has the most eloquent speech, but it's about the message that they proclaim. I guess that's good news for me here this morning. As I preach to a church that's, gift, that's blessed with a bunch of gifted preachers. But the theme of church unity, it roars across the New Testament. We ought to be a people that, apart from the gospel, don't make sense together as one body. We shouldn't look like other social clubs in town who create their unity and community around merely common interests, Right? But we should eagerly seek the deeper unity that's found in the message of the cross. That's what binds us together. Jesus purchased our unity with his blood at the cross. It should be the, the norm, uh, if, you, if you're a member here of, the, of this church, that you're connecting with all different ki- kinds of people and you're connecting over the message of the cross. Because our unity is found in the cross, we come as a church every week to remember the cross. That's what we're doing here right now. 
each Sunday we come to sit under the preaching of the Word because we believe that in sitting under the preaching of the Word, merely sitting under the preaching of the Word, some will be saved and others transformed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Just like verse 23 says, we preach Christ crucified. Therefore, if you're here this morning, this sermon is for you. I want you to know that. This sermon and this message, it's for you. It's God's word to you this morning. If I didn't think the cross was the very word of God to us, I would not be standing here this morning. If you're here, the word of the cross is for you to remember because it's the power by which you can be saved. Christian, I wonder this morning if you are tempted to think of the cross as something that someone else needs to find forgiveness. You know, Jesus once gave a great illustration about someone who thinks like this. He said, if you think like this, you're like a person who walks around with a big plank sticking out of your eye and you don't notice it. When you stand before God at the judgment seat, you won't think of the message of the cross as something that somebody else needs, but you will find it your only hope. I wonder if having begun uh, through, the, through the cross and through the message of grace, if you're tempted to move on to the self-help philosophies of the world. You know, there's hundreds of clickbait articles out there promising life, and there are millions of YouTube videos out there promising happiness and wealth. They make big claims, but many of them hold no water. We follow a God who offers us true wisdom, heavenly wisdom, and he comes through on all of his claims. He's faithful. John Stott once said this about the cross. He said, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get close enough for its sparks to fall on us. We must never move on from the cross. But as we sang earlier, we must be found near the cross. Look there at verse 24 and 25. It's by the word of the cross that God's glory is put on display. Here the scripture tells us that no one can compare to the wisdom of God at the cross. That the best thing man could come up with on his own is like foolishness to God. And the most strength that we could muster on our own is like weakness to God. So centering our life on the cross and remembering the word of the cross daily, it will cause us to revel in the wisdom of God. It's our third point here and final point this morning. Revel in God's wisdom. Here we're looking at verses 26 to 31. So Paul starts out in 26 and he's kind of like, hey, you want to know how I know that salvation is not about worldly wisdom or human effort? You want to know how I know that salvation is God's alone? Well, you yourselves are the evidence. <laughs> Not a huge compliment to them. Let's look at verse 27 and 26 through 27. Not many of you were the wise philosopher or wealthy or of noble birth. Not many of you had everything going for you in the eyes of the world. But God set his love on you. He did that to show that salvation belongs to him. Talk about a pill of humility for all of us this morning. But this truth is actually wonderful, right? That salvation is all about God's grace and his unmerited favor to us. He is the one who calls us and wakes us up from the dead 
just by his word. Throughout all of the Bible, we see this is how God works, through his word. Right? He speaks and things come into existence. He speaks and he reveals himself to us. And he speaks and the dead are brought to life. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Christian, this is your primary calling this morning. Not first to your job, not first to your hobbies, but first to your Father who is in heaven. You are to be his child. And when the scriptures speak of calling, this is what we mean. That the calling of God is unmistakably about God calling us to himself in salvation. Furthermore, look at verse 28 with me. God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are. God chose the cross to accomplish victory. That which was low and despised in the world. That's how he accomplished his victory. God is just like this. He loves to work in the ways that we least expect. It's how he gets glory. We hardly ever see his plans out in advance because he works through the unlikely and unexpected. He chooses the man who has a speech impediment to lead his people out of Egypt. He chooses the man that persecuted the church to build his church. He chooses unlikely circumstances in our lives so that we might overcome them through his power. He answers our prayers in surprising ways, doesn't he? Sometimes I was thinking this week about how God has worked in unexpected ways, even in the life of this church. And I just thought about how wonderful it is that God chose COVID to grow our church, both in number and in maturity. And I, in fact, we actually had a whole college ministry born up and sprung up out of COVID. It's being led up by one of our own members, Calvin Davis. God is working in your life in unexpected ways too. He's doing that so you might depend on him and lean on him and see his wisdom displayed. If you've come this morning and you're going through various trials, know that God is working in unexpected ways, even if you can't see it now. This is how he gets glory. If we're honest, though, sometimes we don't think of glory like this. We project our version of glory onto God. When we think about glory, we think about the quarterback who leads his team down the field at the end of the game and throws the game-winning touchdown pass. And he stands in the arena and he receives the praise of the crowd. But that glory is fleeting. It's there for a moment and it's gone. It's a selfish glory. God's glory, on the other hand, is wholly other. It's completely different. His word tells us that he's most glorified at the cross, at the point of suffering and shame, at the point of utter humiliation. That's when he's most glorified in history. Yet what seemed like defeat then was the victory won. That's what we just sang about. Because we know that three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was accepted by God. Anyone who was looking for a powerful king uh, to overcome and be a political leader and 
who is full of wisdom would not have imagined that it was the cross that brings glory. Yet God brings glory to himself in taking the worst form of death and turning it into our symbol of hope and life. This is how God works. He works in ways that are different than us. For his wisdom and wonderful plan of salvation, we praise him. This passage puts on display our inherent pride and God's wisdom for dealing with that pride. God chose this way of calling people through the unlikely for one particular reason. Look there at verse 29. It says, So that no human being might boast in his presence. That was God's ultimate purpose in his choosing. In his choosing you, in his choosing the cross, and his choosing to send his son into the world. It was all his choice. And it was all his wisdom so that we might see his plan and marvel at it. It crushes our pridefulness because it shows us that God is the author of salvation from beginning to end. Pride can come in many forms. I wonder where pride is found in you this morning. I wonder where pride might be found even in our church this morning. Pride can be thinking much of yourself and of your accomplishments. It also can be found in you if you're riddled with insecurity. Because ultimately, pride is about thinking, what can I offer? It, it depends on you and what you can accomplish. God tells us that apart from him, none of us can do a single thing that's good. Verse 30 explains it. You'll only be called wise. You'll only be called righteous. You'll only be called sanctified and redeemed if you are found in Christ. This is the great exchange of the gospel. That Jesus became our folly and he became our sin so that we might become his righteousness and his wisdom. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I plead with you, turn to Christ. He is the only way that you can be made right with God. The passage concludes with pride's kryptonite. It tells us what we should feed our pride if we want to kill it. Verse 31 tells us that the antidote to pride is boasting in the Lord. Make your boast in the Lord. The antidote to feelings that pull you away from God is remembering his love for you at the cross. Praise God in your prayers. Let his works and his good deeds be on your lips as you walk each day. Talk about him and his goodness towards you with others. We don't need to be, remind, to be told a new truth. We need to be reminded of the old truth. The truth that God is the only one worthy of praise. The message of his grace to an undeserving world at the cross of Christ. This is the wisdom that we revel in. When we receive his message rightly, our natural response is going to be to revel at his wisdom. Well, we stated at the beginning that the life of wisdom is a cross-centered life. We need this message of the cross every day, every morning. It's the lens through which we see everything in this world. It's the central truth that we have because it's the central message that God proclaims to us. And it's the message that we bring to a dying world. 
C.S. Lewis once said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. The, word, the world and its folly are coming at you every day. Will you silence that folly with the wisdom of the cross? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you would turn each of our eyes to the cross to see your wisdom there. That you would cause our hearts to marvel at your wisdom and your plan of salvation and your redemption. I pray that you would help us by the Holy Spirit to cling to the cross and preserve us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.